Hello, greetings. I'm so glad that you're interested in spiritual things. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. In 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 17, Paul exhorts Christians to pray without ceasing. And so we know as Christians that we're supposed to pray, and that we're supposed to make it a habit to pray. And we know this. A lot of people who believe to be Christians, even those who may not believe in Jesus, but recognize that a big part of religion is prayer and praying. But do we recognize as Christians just how important prayer is supposed to be to living the Christian life? We ask that question because it's very easy in our post-enlightenment secular age to disconnect our prayer life from even the rest of our quote-unquote religious life, let alone uh, the quote-unquote secular life that we live. Uh, We know we should pray, and we pray occasionally, but do we actually expect anything to change because we prayed? Really? Do we expect anything to be better or to go in a certain way because we prayed? It's very easy in our and to divide into, okay, we've got this part of my life is my secular life, is my religious life, my prayer life. We can divide in all these little boxes or little rooms and act like they have nothing to do with each other. But that's certainly not what we see in the Bible. And it's very easy, though, to, even just on a religious level, discount what prayer can do because of some concerns that are valid. There are passages in the Bible like Mark 11, 22-24, John 14, 13, and 14, passages like that where Jesus and the Apostles say, Whatever you pray for, I will give to you. And it's very easy for people in the world, and even in the religious world, to take passages like that. Well, anything? So if you pray for a million dollars, you pray for a new Bentley, you pray for a new... Uh, that you're going to get all healthy and wealthy and all this stuff. Uh, if, if you pray for it, you, you'll get it. After all, he says, if you, anything you ask in my name, I'll give it to you. I'll make sure that you get it. So, uh, well, what happens if somebody prays those prayers and doesn't get it? Well, they don't, they don't have enough faith. They don't trust enough. And we recognize that, wait a second, that's pushing a little too far. Other people act as if they have to receive direction from God down to the most minute matters of life. Uh, exactly when to get up, exactly what to do, and this or that, and it, almost every single decision, it, no matter how minute they take it, as if uh, they have to get a special revelation from God in order to do so, in order to move forward. And, and so in that kind of environment, we see a lot of people who are taking this kind of confidence in prayer in all of these directions, that to get too cons- concerned that you're putting too much emphasis on what we're supposed to expect from prayer. And therefore, we kind of scale down our expectations a bit and limit what we hope to receive. And I guess if we're honest, how much of it is really that we're afraid of disappointment, doubt, and maybe even fear of abandonment or rejection if we pray but don't receive? And isn't it very easy to slide into cynicism about the entire endeavor? Well... I'm supposed to pray. I know I'm supposed to pray, so I'm going to pray now. I have no actual hope anything's going to change. So I'm just going to pray, God, forgive my sins. Well, I know you can do that, but I'm probably going to do it again. Uh, I pray that uh, your word may uh, go forth and many will come to knowledge of the truth, although no one's really going to listen to it. I pray that uh, people will be healed, but they probably won't. I pray for the well-being of these people, which I really hope happens, but who knows. 
uh, very easy to undercut our prayers at every moment because of the how, how cynicism has crept into our lives and even crept into the attitude that we have in our prayers. And nobody's going to actually say those parentheticals. Maybe some bold person might say them. Most of us don't say them. That's what we're thinking. That's what we're feeling. And, and let this none be deceived. If that's what we're thinking and feeling, God knows it. God knows it. And is that really praying in faith when we have those doubts, those those moments of cynicism and fear? Now, those are there are concerns, and we suffer the disconnects. But we should consider from Scripture the connections between prayer and the Christian life. We should look at how first God has made and continues to sustain the world, the things that he's done for us, and how that's supposed to frame our prayer lives. And then we can look at the promises and some fulfillments of the promises that God has made for his people and how that might actually relate to us in our prayers. And we might just find out that there is a lot more going on with our prayer lives than we might have imagined. The first major challenge in prayer is to put our trust in God, that he is out there and that he is listening. Well, everybody thinks, well, that should be self-evident. Well, it should be self-evident, but it's not, because we live in this post-enlightenment world. Keep knocking the Enlightenment, because the Enlightenment enshrined the idea of knowledge. And so many people who even would believe in God and Enlightenment really believed in deistic God or deist God. And in deism, uh, God set everything in motion. God created everything, but then allows natural forces uh, to do their thing. And so he kind of winds up the toy or winds up the creation, then steps back and let it just run its course. And that is absolutely the view of the secular cultural consensus of our day. Uh, science can explain uh, natural phenomena. Therefore, the things that happen, the way they happen, are just natural forces. Uh, maybe all of those phenomena are as a result of the action of an intelligent divine being. But he just set it all up and just kind of let it all go. And so everything that happens is just natural phenomena. The reason that something happens to you and not somebody else is just chance. Uh, the reason that uh, it's raining or not raining is uh, cyclical weather patterns. And uh, everything has some kind of natural cause, as if the natural functioning is all that they're concerned about. And if that's the case, then there's no real point in prayer because if the God, if the day as God exists, you can cry out to Him all day long, but He's already set everything in motion. Uh, he's not going to come and intervene to change anything because it's all set in motion. It's just natural phenomena running out the string until the box stops being wound, apparently. Now, it's very important to recognize that the deist view of God has always been, continues to be, and always will be completely different, and at variance with the presentation of who God is in Scripture. And again, it's very difficult to not talk about the nature of the divine because he is so so higher than we are, and we're told only certain things. But in Acts 17, uh, 24 through 28, that the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might file their way toward him and find him. For he is actually not far from any each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. 
It's a point there that he, in him we live and move and have our being. That, that there is, God is other in so many ways, but in a very fundamental and real sense, we exist in God. In Colossians 1, 7, 16 and 17, uh, Paul says, For by him, uh, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things hold together. That's a present tense. Paul's talking about that as a present reality. It's not something out there to happen. It's going on right now. And the Hebrew author, in Hebrews 1 and verse 3, also about Jesus that he is the exact irradiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Upholds the universe by the word of his power, that he sustains it. And again, that's present tense. It's a true present thing today. And so in these passages, the New Testament makes it abundantly clear that the view of God is not, well, he just set the creation in motion and let it go. No, he continually sustains the creation. The creation continues to exist because he wills it, because he upholds it, because he sustains it. If at any moment he no longer wills to uphold sustain it, it will be gone. It will end. It will meet its. It will. It cannot con- con- continue. God can't just roll it up, or just spin up the wheel and let it go. He's got to continue to sustain it for it to keep going. So this means that even what we call natural processes, even if they happen in a way that we can explain from start to finish in terms of natural phenomena, the reason even that the natural phenomena happens that way is the power of God. The reason that it works consistently and we can even expect a certain result, all the weather forecasting, all of the physiological things we take for granted, are because God sustains it and wills it to be. And we have never known a time or an opportunity where uh, what have God no longer will it to be. We would not understand. We would not know because if that were to happen, it, we have no idea what kind of chaos might be introduced into the creation. We can't know because at no point, as long as we've known it, has that ever been the case. So, God's power, God's loyalty to covenant and faithfulness is what keeps everything going. Therefore we can have confidence in our prayer life. Because if we continue to exist because God sustains a creation, if he continues to sustain it and uphold it, he is active in it. If he's active in it, if we cry out to him, he can actively do something about it. If we don't believe that God is going to be able or willing to do anything about what we're praying about, there's no point in it. We must believe in God's active, continual presence and activity in the creation to be willing to pray for it to take place. And we see in Matthew 18, Romans 12, Ephesians 6, and other places, Luke 18, uh, where things like this are discussed. But it's not even just about uh, the continued sustenance of God, and therefore His natural phenomena. Um, oh, excuse me. What? Our prayers also need to be rooted in our recognition of our dependence upon God. So yes, yes, God exists. God is active in creation. But prayer is especially rooted in the fact that not only are these things true, but that he actually has given us everything we have, and therefore there's nothing that we have that came from our own strength. It all ultimately comes from God. And therefore, without God, we are nothing. 
And so why wouldn't we put our trust in him in prayer? And that's exactly that's the implication of Colossians 1, 16, 17. He upholds all things by his power. In Hebrews 1, 3. And all things exist for him. For him, all things exist and consist. So without Jesus, there is nothing. Absolutely nothing. In Genesis 1 and 2, uh, we see that the creation is made by God, and we are given dominion over it. So it's a gift. In Romans 5, 6-11, that uh, God commends his love for us, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. In Ephesians 1, 3, that he has given us all spiritual blessings in Christ. In Romans 8, and verse 15, we are given the adoption as sons through Christ to have the ability to communicate with God as Father, and to have hope for the share of the inheritance. In Romans 8, 31-39, that God has justified and will not condemn those in Christ. And that if he has given us of a son, will he not also in him give us all things? That nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And in these things we emphasize our unworthiness. So many times. We did not deserve to be created. We did not deserve to enjoy the spiritual blessings that God has given us. And we are to be eternally grateful and thankful to him. And that's true. Very important. Well and good. But... We should not look past the substance of the promises. God did not spare his own son. Will he not with him give us all things? If we pray to him, will he not hear and act? Can we not trust in that promise since God has proven faithful time and time again to his people? Psalm 136. For his steadfast love endures forever. His chesed, his covenant loyalty endures forever. In verse 13, God is faithful talking about the fact that he will not tempt us beyond what we are able. But God is faithful. And so, we have every reason to put our trust in God because he has brought us this far by his grace. We are who we are and have what we have by his grace. And whatever we're going through, we can entrust to him. And so, we can see that whether we are trusting that God is in his reward or seek him, in Hebrews 11, verse 6, is made evident through our prayers. Do we pray in faith so that, as to believe that God is capable and willing to take care of his purposes and advance his purposes through us? Do we pray as if that's the truth and that's the case? Or not? Or do we have doubts about those things? And what does James tell us in James 4 through 6 about those who pray in doubt? That we should not expect to receive anything from God as double minded persons. Let's take a question. Okay, okay. So we, we 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 grant. Okay, God is. God sustains us. God has given us all that we have. Therefore, it is right in me to trust in God. What should we pray for then? What do we have a right to expect to happen when we pray? And there's a lot of powerful, great examples of prayer things being done, and they get a lot of press uh, because people pray. It's like Acts four twenty three thirty one. The apostles pray because they pray. The earth shakes. And they preach the word with boldness, the very thing they asked for. In Acts 12, the Christians are praying for Peter, who's in prison. An angel comes and releases Peter from prison. In Acts 12, 25, sorry, Acts 16, 25-34, Paul and Silas are praying and singing at midnight. And earth, the earthquakes, and their, their chains are loosed. Uh, the jailer is going to... You know, commit suicide because he's lost his the people he's supposed to be watching. Uh, Paul cries out for him not to do that, and for, because of that, the jailer and his family receive the news of salvation and become obedient. In 2 Peter 3, 9-13, when Peter talks about the day of the Lord that's coming, a great destruction, and he asks, what kind of people ought you to be in holiness, hastening for, hastening, wait a minute, hastening, hastening the coming of the day of judgment. 
hastening in our prayers, hastening in our conduct. That's that's powerful. The idea that through what we're trying to do, what we pray for, the day of judgment may come faster. But even so, there are lots of other examples, commands and exhortations about prayer that we would consider a lot more banal about everyday matters, things that we would almost take for granted and overlook. In Matthew 6, 9-13, what is the, the Lord's Prayer? Give us our daily bread. Forgive us of our debts, as we forgive those who are indebted to us. Lead us not in temptation, deliver us from the evil one. First Timothy 4, 5, the idea that, the, that food is sanctified by the Word of God and by prayer. That the simple act of praying for our food and thanking God for it and, and for its blessing can sanctify that food. Romans 1, 9, 10, Paul prayed to visit the Christians in Rome. Paul is a minister of God. He can go wherever he, the, God, uh, the Lord uh, compels him to go. But he's been praying that he may go to Rome. Just a very simple request. In James 5, 13-15, James talks about the needing to pray for those who are sick. 1 John 1 and verse 2, 3 John should be 1 and verse 2, John prays for Gaius and those who are with him for their physical welfare as it goes with their soul. And of course, so many of the prayers in the New Testament are about the growth of the faith and the promotion of the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 13, 7 and 9, Paul prays that the Corinthians may be mature and not do evil. Philippians 1, 9 and Colossians 1, 3 and 9, uh, Paul prays for Christians to abound in love, to be filled with knowledge of God in Christ. Colossians 4, 3, 1 Thessalonians 5, 25, 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 1. In these passages, Paul's requesting prayer for himself and the advancements of uh, God's purposes through him. And similarly, in Colossians 4, 2, 1 Peter 4, 7, he's exhorting Christians to continue steadfastly in prayer, prayer and to be sober unto prayer. In 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 10, Paul prays that he might see the Thessalonians so as to complete what is lacking in their faith. In Jude 1 and verse 20, the exhortation is given to pray in the Holy Spirit to build up in faith, to keep themselves in the love of God. So it's very interesting to see that, sure, according to Hebrews 2, 3 through 4, the, the Holy Spirit is allowing the apostles to work all of these miracles and to do all these signs and wonders to establish the authority of the Word in a way that is no longer necessary and therefore we should not expect now. But we can see that just as the apostles and early Christians depended upon God in prayer for far more, including just the general banal realities of life, food and drink, and um, where to, you know, praying they may go to visit some people about the, the promotion of the gospel, there are still plenty of reasons for prayer and to depend upon God in prayer. And this leads us to a very instructive example in Ephesians three fourteen through 21 For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God." Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So, Paul is praying here to the Father, in verse 14. And he, the Father describes the one who, through whom all the families of earth are named. And he's praying that the Ephesian Christians may be strengthened with power through his spirit, through their spirit and the inner being. 
So he's praying that the Holy Spirit will strengthen the inner being of the Christians of Ephesus. That the, power, that the Father will grant that power through the Spirit in their inner being. And that these saints will be grounded in love. This is possible when Christ dwells in their hearts through faith. When Christ dwells in their hearts through faith, through the strengthening in the Spirit, they'll be able to be grounded in love, to understand the incomprehensible and unknowable depth of the love of Christ, to be filled with the fullness of God. That's the substance of the prayer, which seems so contradictory. How can you comprehend the incomprehensible depth of the love of God? Well, that you at least can comprehend that you don't comprehend it. That's the first way, the first thing you need to know is what you don't know. If you don't know what you don't know, that's a bigger problem. As long as you know that you don't know, that can be worked with. And to continue to plumb the depth of God's love is to be more and more amazed and to bow down more and more and to serve more deeply and to adore and glorify the name of God in Christ. And notice the emphasis here, the, that the power through the Spirit in the inner being, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, so you should be filled with the fullness of God. And a lot of people will, will, will try to parse all this out, but you've got the presence of God in the Spirit, which means that the Father dwells in you, the Son dwells in you, the Spirit is, is present with you, that you are abiding with God. You can tie this to John 17. That, that uh, we are one with God, and we are in Christ. It's also interesting to see the doxology. Doxology is a statement of praise. Doxos, pray, a glory, logos, word. So it's a word of praise. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations of every man. So he's, he's, he's declaring something about the Father. And he is the one who can do more than we can ask or think through the power at work within us. And the glory in the church and in generation Christ throughout all generations. So from this prayer we see many things. We see that our source of strength is God. That's why Paul will say in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That the strength does not come from us. Because how have any of us, through our own strength, been able to fully accomplish the will of God? No, we, we have all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. We can't do by our own strength. If the practice of Christianity were, on a daily basis, were left to our own strength alone, how effective would that be against temptation and promotion of righteousness? Not very. When we're in Christ, it does not mean automatically the struggle gets any easier. That, that, uh, Satan is still like a roaring lion seeking to be devoured, First Peter 5.8. That hasn't changed. Instead, from Jesus constantly being in prayer, to the apostles' devotion to prayer, to the prayers of the saints as incense and revelation, we can see that Christians were constantly in prayer, not just to say what they needed to say to God, which God already knew, but to be empowered to live the life that God would have them to live for His glory and honor. We can see examples that we said in Luke 6, 12, Acts 6, 4, Revelation 8, 4. Because the whole reason we exist, after all, is God's provision and strength. In Genesis 1, we've seen that God's provision and strength is to hold the universe and uphold the creation in God, Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1. So if that's the case, how could we live without God's provision and strength? Even if we think it's our own strength, ultimately it comes from God's creation within us. 
And so we, we either can try to do things by our own feeble strength, or we can instead learn to lean and trust upon the divine strength uh, that's already at work within us, and that we can get that strength through the spirit that's in us. Because how can we live the life God would have us to live through his strength? How are we going to be able to attain that strength? By asking for it. So I, and then Paul continues by praying that saints may comprehend the grace of God's love in Christ. And of course, Christianity is founded upon the death and resurrection of Jesus and the profound expression of God's love through Jesus in John 3, 16, 1 John 4, 7 through 21. When we think about God, Christ gave, God gave Christ for us, how will he not also through him give us all things? The immensity of that sacrifice is the testimony, bears witness to God's love for us. And it forced us, any time we have doubts about God's love for us, to, to get back to that issue. If that was really true, if God was really willing to abandon us now, forsake us now, why would he have given Jesus? And every time we go back to that, we get that assurance of faith that if, look, if God gave us Jesus, he's not just going to say, okay, here's Jesus' sacrifice, here's the hope of the resurrection, here's the Bible, okay, you're good. That's not the way it's going to work, because we're just, that hasn't worked. It hasn't worked, and it's never going to work. It's not that the Bible is insufficient for its purposes. It's not that Jesus is insufficient for its purposes. We are weak, and we need constant strength, and we cannot depend upon our own strength alone if we're going to do this. It hasn't worked before. Jesus is not going to work in Jesus. It's only going to work when we understand how powerful God is, how much God loves us, the depth of that love, so that we put our trust in Him and stop trying to do it on our own. Just love of God and from God is fundamental and basic to the life of the Christian in 1 Corinthians 13. And it's not for nothing that God, Paul glorifies God as the one who can do more than we can ask or think through the power of work within us. In verses 20-21. As, as the heavens are higher than the earth, Isaiah says in Isaiah 55 9 so are God's ways higher than our ways and His thoughts than our thoughts. We can't even begin to think about what God has in mind for us. And yet He's able to do fantastically more than we can even begin to think. And he wants to work powerfully through us. Right? Or, or does he? Because it's been very easy to fall into uh, Christian deism. That God has worked through his people until the end of the first century and now has left us on our own against natural forces. We can pray. He may even answer through providence. He may decide to work through his own power a miracle, uh, but there's no power of God working through us in this kind of view. But the Paul's prayer here in Ephesians 3 shows the problems with that view. Because it's not just for the Ephesian Christians he prays this, but in verse 18, that all of the saints, with all the saints to know the breadth and length and height and depth, to the love of no love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And furthermore, that the one who is able to do these things should get glory not just at the present, but throughout all generations in the church. And in verses 10 and 11 of that same chapter, not long earlier, he talked about the eternal plan that God had established in Jesus Christ, manifest in the church. In light of all of these discussions that Yes, even though it's being written to a certain group of people at a certain time, certainly show that God's purposes involved in this discussion are eternal. How can we limit or restrict what Paul is praying to the first century only? We can't. 
that God empowers a Christian life when we pray, and that we can only be sustained through God's provision and strength. That's true physically, it's true spiritually, that we need to depend upon God constantly for all things, and we do that in prayer. We must pray and believe God hears and will provide in James 1-5-8. If we pray in doubt, we're not going to get what we ask for because we're not praying sincerely. Do we know how? No. We may only see it upon reflection of how God has sustained us as we look in the back, backward in time, but God does hear and God does provide. Do we believe, as James says in James 5 and verse 16, the prayer of the righteous man has great power and it's working? That can only be true if God heeds prayer and is active in the creation, if the righteous person is depending upon God in prayer. How much struggle and pain are we suffering because we're not taking it to God in prayer? How much is left undone, not because God is unable or unwilling, but because we haven't asked for it? We haven't asked for God to work through us to accomplish it. Do we expect God to coerce or compel us or force himself to work through us? There may be times he, he must need to for his purposes, but that's not his nature. He's not somebody who courses or compels, because that's not the way of love, and he is love in 1 John 4, 8. Love does not insist on its own way in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. So will God do things through us if we have not entrusted ourselves to him and that we, uh, to that end and have not sought for him to do so? We have no reason to think he does. There is a God. He is alive. And his ears are open to the prayers of his people. The saints of old depended upon the strength of God in Christ. They prayed for it, and they were not disappointed. Are we, though, willing to step out in faith in our prayer lives and trust ourselves to the one who can do beyond what we can ask or think according to the power at work within us, to truly ask for him to work through us according to his purposes and be willing to see that through? Will we rely on the strength which God supplies to live the life that he would have us to live? We need to find empowerment for our life in Christ through God's strength and to constantly pray to that end. Again, we're thankful for your uh, joining us and your interest in spiritual things. We hope that you've been encouraged by this message, and we hope that we've been an encouragement to your life in prayer. If there's any way we can help you, maybe you'd like to talk more about these things, maybe you'd like to learn more about how to be a Christian, maybe you need your prayers, maybe you'd like a prayer request. Or just need to talk. Just let me know. Contact me through my website, deverbalvitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. If you want to learn more about the Venice Church of Christ, we're online at venicechurchofchrist.org. We're also on a lot of social media pages. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Meetup, YouTube, others. It's Venice Church or Venice Church of Christ. We again thank you. Have a great day.